Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hello, friends. Welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? This week on the podcast, we're going to be doing a Q&A episode. You all submitted some really awesome questions, and I'm going to answer some of them on this week's episode. Before we launch into that, I want to address the current situation in Toronto as far as the fitness industry is concerned. This past Friday, the government announced that we would be moving back into a version of phase two in relation to COVID. And this version of phase two would include shutting down gyms and fitness facilities, among other things. For so many of my friends who are trainers, who rely on gyms for their livelihood, who are gym owners, who are business owners that operate out of gyms, I know that this was such challenging news and this new measure, this new phase is going to be in effect for 28 days and hopefully it's only 28 days, but I just wanted to start off by saying I feel for all of you who rely on gyms for your businesses and for your livelihood at this point personally because I'm now full-time with DTS Fitness Education, luckily that's not me. But a few short months ago, it would have been. So I know that this is a really challenging announcement. It feels like we're moving backwards instead of forwards, which can be really upsetting in a lot of ways. The only thing I'll say is this. I know everyone's situation is different and everyone deals with these things differently. The only thing I'll say is this is something that we can't control. Therefore... Getting down and thinking about how much this is going to hurt us, how unfair it is, and being in that negative headspace is not going to be helpful. As much as possible, I hope that we can all enter this space of gratitude for what we do have, gratitude for our health, and this headspace of positivity moving forward. Although it looks like another setback, another challenge on the surface. How can you use this time to your advantage? You have four weeks. If you think not about your one month or two month plan for your business and think instead about your three year or five year plan, how can you use this four weeks to move that ball forward? I know that doesn't necessarily make it any easier and I, like I said, I feel very, very much, very deeply for everyone who is impacted by this decision. I'm hopeful that we will get through this in a matter of four weeks. I hope that everyone does their part and actually maintains social distancing and is careful and wears their protective equipment and all of this stuff so that it really is only four weeks and then we're out of this in that short amount of time. Okay, I received some awesome questions this week that I am very excited to address. The first question is from Marco. Marco asks, why do you train barefoot? Isn't it dangerous? 
Marco, thank you so much for this question. I think this is a really important one to address because in many commercial gym spaces, you're actually required to wear shoes and they think of it as a safety measure because they don't want you to drop weights on your foot and potentially break a toe or something. While I am all for safety, (laughs) I think the benefits of training barefoot far outweigh that potential risk of dropping a weight on your foot. And let's be real, even if you have a shoe on, if you're dropping a heavy weight on your foot, you're probably doing some damage. But if we think about the foot, your foot is your base of support for every single movement that you do. There are two main reasons why I think it's especially important to train barefoot. And the first is for stability. So if we think about our foot being that base of support, when you remove your shoe, you're requiring your foot to do the work of stabilizing. Your foot is an absolutely amazing part of your body. It's compromised of 33 different joints and they all need to both move and be stable. When we place our feet in shoes, foot coffins, as my colleagues like to call them, when we place our foot in shoes, all of a sudden we remove the need for the foot to do all the work of stabilizing. We know that the foot as your base of support is connected to everything up the kinetic chain. So foot activation and foot stability has a direct relationship to glute activation and hip stability, which has a direct relation to core activation and core stability. The foot really is the starting place. Let's allow our foot to do the work of being that base of support on its own and stabilizing our movements on its own. In addition, when you train in shoes, you remove the ability of all the nerve endings on your feet to feel the floor. This in turn starts to dampen the neurological connection between your brain and your feet. We know that when certain nerves are not put to use, that their excitability reduces, their ability to fire reduces, and the area in the brain that corresponds to your foot, for example, will actually start to reduce. If you're not using it, you're going to lose it. That applies to muscles and it applies to your neurological system as well. Like I said, Everything is intimately connected, and I can sit here and talk about the science and the theories behind this as much as I want, but I encourage you to try it for a month. Do your strength training in bare feet instead of in shoes, and I guarantee your stability will improve. Your connection through your feet will improve. All of a sudden, you'll start to feel your feet on the floor more, and therefore, your ability to activate everything up the kinetic chain as you want to will improve. It's really amazing. I am a huge fan of training in bare feet. I do it almost every single time that I strength train. If you've never tried it, I encourage you to give it a whirl. Commit to it for a certain amount of time. Commit to it for a month instead of just trying it once because 
It might take a bit for you to really start to improve that connection, improve the mobility and stability through your feet, but over a relatively short period of time, you'll definitely feel the difference. All right, question number two is from Rachel. Rachel is asking, what is your go-to technique to deal with stress? This is such an important topic. Stress management, honestly, I'm starting to believe that the ability to manage stress is one of the biggest factors when it comes to your overall health and longevity throughout a lifetime. Everyone has their own methods and different things that resonate with them. Some people like meditation, some people can't stand it. Some people like breath work, some people can't stand it. I think as with anything in health and wellness, you have to find the thing that resonates with you. So I'll share the things that have been resonating with me lately, but keep in mind that it requires a little bit of exploration. You have to understand what does it feel like when you're stressed and what does it feel like when you've removed that stress and then you you have to explore potentially what will work for you. Personally, walking outside in the fresh air is a massive stress reliever for me. And it has to be screen free, obviously. Just being without my phone, noticing the environment around me, taking deep breaths in and out through my nose, thinking about diaphragmatic breathing, doing that makes me feel so grounded and so much better about whatever it is that I'm stressed over. It's just that pause, right? Stress management requires you to pause and reflect and process through what's going on. How is something in your life affecting you? Why is it affecting you? And then how can you reframe the way that you look at that thing to make you feel better about it? I think mindset is a massive part of this. Two questions that I personally love to ask myself are when a stressful situation or a negative situation arises that's bringing me some challenging emotions, I try to reframe it and think, how can I be grateful for what's happening right now? And it's not always completely obvious. Our brain doesn't always pop to the positive side of a situation. It's wired, in fact, to look at the negative side first. So I think, how can I reframe this and what can I be grateful for within this situation? I'll share with you guys, this past week, my bike actually got stolen right off my back deck. And apparently that's something that's been happening somewhat often over on this side of town as bikes are in very high demand right now. But it was a bit unsettling. Eric is away, so I'm alone in the house. So the thought of someone entering onto my back deck and taking my bike was just a little bit weird. And also, I love biking around. It is 100% my preferred mode of transportation. I actually actively dislike getting in the car and driving and parking and that whole thing. And I love biking. I had a really nice bike. So I was pretty upset when I woke up to find that it had been taken. But instead of dwelling on the negatives, I reframed it and thought, 
I'm grateful that Molly and I are safe. I'm grateful that it's an inanimate object and it's completely replaceable. And yes, it's an expensive item, but I'm grateful that I have the means to purchase another one if that's what I choose to do. So it's the reframing of the situation that I think can can actually be unbelievably powerful and it helped me in that situation to process through things much easier. Another great question that you can ask yourself to switch your mindset is, what is another perspective? What is another way to look at this? Naturally, we look at things from our own narrow-minded perspective, and it can often be a little bit selfish, the way we look at things. So what if you zoom out? How would an outsider look at this situation? What would they see? When your emotions are so tied into something, it can be hard to do that. What is another perspective? If Eric and I get into a little fight or a little argument, for example, how can I step back and understand where is he coming from? What is his perspective? Removing my own ego and emotions and beliefs out of it completely, where is Eric coming from? And doing that can be quite freeing because it can help you see how your own judgments and beliefs are clouding the way that you're looking at the situation and can help you to understand that there are many, many ways to look at any given situation. So my two favorite questions, how can I be grateful and what is another perspective? And for me, that's been really useful lately in helping me to manage my stress. Other ideas for helping to manage your stress, make sure you're moving. It doesn't necessarily have to be training. It could be training, but moving our bodies is an incredible way to process through things. Get out in nature. Separate yourself from your devices. Dial in on your breath. You could try formal meditations, guided meditations if you'd like. All of these things are so key when it comes to our stress. Okay, next question. I love this one. This one's from Anna. Should everyone back squat? Short answer is no. (laughs) The back squat is arbitrary. Think about it. How often in your daily life Are you loading up something really heavy onto your back and doing reps of squats? Never. Yes, the squat is a very functional movement pattern, but the back squat specifically, you don't have to be doing a back squat. Now, the main advantage to a back squat, and the reason many people like it, is because it's easy to really load up the bar and squat a lot of weight. But there are many ways to get this done and you don't necessarily have to back squat, especially if it doesn't feel great on your body. One of the main considerations when you're thinking about whether you should back squat or not is what is your femur to torso ratio? If you have a relatively long femur in relation to your torso, your anthropometrics are set up so that it may be more challenging for you to back squat than someone who has a shorter femur. 
The reason for this is that as you come down into your squat, your knees with a long femur need to translate much farther over your toes in order to keep the weight over your midfoot. Now, this doesn't mean that it's impossible for you to back squat. It just requires that you have ample ankle mobility in order to allow you to get into that position. In my experience as a trainer, opportunities with ankle mobility are very common. There's also research that tells us that the ankle is more likely to be a limiter of the squat pattern than the hips. So if you have anthropometrics that aren't conducive to you being able to back squat and or you have opportunities with ankle mobility, the back squat might not be for you. And that is okay. There are many other types of squats that you can do. You can front squat, you can goblet squat, you can do a safety bar squat. There are many options that allow you to train the squat pattern without necessarily having to do a back squat. While we're on the subject, it's also very arbitrary to have to do a deadlift pulling the bar off the floor. The height of the bar is arbitrary. It's based on the size of the plates that the manufacturers make. So everyone's body, based on their anthropometrics, based on their mobility, based on their stability, not everyone is going to be able to deadlift a bar off the floor. And that's okay. So as trainers, this is the most important thing. We just need to understand that we need to personalize these things to the specific client that's in front of us. Our next question is from Kate. Kate is asking about cardio. What is the deal with cardio? Do I need to be doing it? Do I not need to be doing it? And what's better, steady state or intervals? This is a fantastic question and something that I think really follows trends in the fitness industry. Like for a while, everyone thought you needed to do steady state fasted cardio. More lately, the massive trend has been HIIT training. So what's the right answer? Here's the thing. It's all effective. All of it will improve your cardiorespiratory fitness. And we know that your cardiorespiratory fitness is very important. It is still the number one factor when we think about longevity of life. So you should be doing some form of cardio that can come in many shapes and sizes. The rule of thumb when it comes to more steady state cardio versus HIIT training is that if you're doing steady state cardio, it needs to be for a longer duration in order to see the effects. When we start to think about intervals, the more all out you go, the less time is needed in that activity. That intuitively makes sense. The minimum effective dose for improving your cardiorespiratory fitness can be three intervals. Now I'm talking of all out effort, everything you've got, three 20 second intervals with one minute rest in between. And you can do that three times a week and improve 
your cardiorespiratory fitness. Now, in order to do that, you better go all out for those 20 seconds, but that is your minimum effective dose. And that comes by research by Dr. Martin Gabala, who wrote The One Minute Workout. For some people, they have an adversity to that high level of intensity, and they don't want to do those intervals. They'd rather go for a nice slow jog. That's fine. If you're doing steady state, the minimum effective dose that you want to get is 150 minutes a week, and you can divide that out however you want. You could do it three times a week. You could do something every day. You should, however, have something that is specifically for your cardiorespiratory fitness within your program. And I'm not saying that this is with having the optimal body composition in mind. I'm talking about health and longevity. While we're on the topic of cardiorespiratory health and knowing that cardiorespiratory fitness is very closely tied to longevity, a massive factor in our cardiovascular health is inflammation. We just talked about stress. One of the things that increases inflammation in your body is feeling stress. Yes, there is a tie between your emotions and the functioning of your cardiovascular system. And that has been shown in research. There's a big emotional component when it comes to your cardiovascular health. So include some cardiorespiratory fitness in your training at least a couple of times a week and manage your stress on the times in between. All right, our next question is from Alicia. She's asking, I'm having a lot of trouble falling asleep. What are your best tips for falling asleep quickly? This relates to your bedtime routine. Are you giving your mind and your body time to wind down from the day or are you trying to go straight to bed? When it comes to winding down, we know that screens are so stimulating. First of all, they emit blue light that decreases your body's production of melatonin by 50% and can delay the release of melatonin up to three hours. As a reminder, melatonin is our hormone that makes us feel sleepy. So the blue light is a huge factor, and you can wear blue light glasses in order to mitigate that effect. But that's not the only factor at play. When we think about our screens, we're looking at information or watching a show that is very stimulating for our brains and therefore for our bodies. Shows are meant to take us on an emotional roller coaster. And going on that emotional roller coaster is quite stimulating and not necessarily conducive to you falling asleep quickly. In addition, social media can bring up emotions, but it's also just very stimulating for your mind. So doing things like reading without a screen, journaling, doing a mind dump, meditating, some light movement or light stretching, having a hot shower. These are all things you can work into your bedtime routine that will help your brain and body to wind down. A couple of other really important considerations when it comes to falling asleep are substances. 
Caffeine sticks around in your body a lot longer than you think it does. And everyone processes caffeine at a little bit different of a pace. But for most people, the half-life of caffeine is five hours. So I think it's really crucial that we don't consume caffeine after noon. You might not consciously notice that it has an effect on you. But physiologically, we know that for most people, it will have an impact. In addition, alcohol can act as a stimulant. So having alcohol before you're going to bed, within three hours of going to bed, can absolutely make it more challenging for you to fall asleep. Food also makes it challenging for you to fall asleep. Having a window of time in which you're not consuming anything before you go to bed is the best way to allow your body to fall into sleep. Personally, I like to try to make that window three hours, but two hours I think is a good minimum. Okay, so really have that solid bedtime routine. And when I say the word routine, I want you to think consistency. Have a consistent bedtime routine that signals your brain and body that it's time to wind down for sleep. Have a cutoff. Turn off all of your screens by a certain time every single night. And I think that can make a massive difference when it comes to your sleep latency. All right, everyone, final question for this episode. And I chose this one because I love talking about this stuff. Julie is asking about journaling. What is your method for journaling? The answer to this question, Julie, is always changing. My journal and the format I use is always evolving. And I think it's important to have that flexibility and that awareness to know when you need to make a change. But I would love to share what my current format is with everyone right now. The first thing I do is I write down a gratitude statement or gratitude statements. Orienting yourself to think about what you can be grateful for in a situation is more powerful than any of us realize. I've been learning more about this And you can honestly, you can teach your brain, you can teach your head to think about the positive side of situations if you are in a habit of writing down or thinking of what you are grateful for. It's freaking powerful. It seems like such a small thing, but it's really important. So I will probably always start my journal with that just to orient myself towards that positivity. Then I write down something about my state of being. What's coming up for me as far as my physical body? Do I feel recovered? Do I feel sore? Do I feel stiff? What's coming up for me as far as my energy level? My mood? Anything that relates to how I'm feeling that day is where I write that. Then I do a two-minute mind dump. What's something that I need to process through? And I take two minutes to do a complete free write about it. Two minutes flies. But I think this has actually been really powerful for me in processing through some things in the last couple of months. Then I write my intention statement for the day. How do I want to show up? For myself? For others? What is the feeling 
that I want to arrive with and that I want to bring to others. And I normally think specifically about the most important thing or the most important interaction that I'm going to have that day. And I speak specifically to that. Finally, I have 10 things that I try to do on a daily basis and I call them my daily accountability list. So I reflect on the day before on whether I did those 10 things. Those 10 things include things like mobility, journaling, not looking at my phone first thing in the morning. So I like to wait to look at my phone until I've done my mobility and done my journaling for the day. Making sure that I've connected with someone in my life. Making sure that I've given Molly the proper love and attention that she deserves. So it's just things like that. Things that I know make my day better, make me feel more connected to people, and are things that I want to accomplish every single day. That whole journaling process takes 10 minutes max, but it's so powerful. Almost all of the most successful people in this world. CEOs, leaders, thought leaders, they all take the time to do something like a journaling practice. Time to reflect, time to orient themselves for the day. There's something to it. And I know that I really appreciate how it makes me feel grounded before I launch into the rest of my day. All right, everyone, that's all the questions that I'm going to answer for today. Thank you all for asking your questions and engaging with the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you have other questions or topics or subjects that you'd really like to hear on the podcast, please send them my way. I love hearing from the listeners and I love getting input from all of you. All right, everyone, that is all from me this week. Sending love and positive vibes out to everyone wherever you're tuning in from. As a reminder, I release episodes of How Do You Feel every Monday morning, so make sure that you've subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. Most importantly, if you think that there is someone in your life who could benefit from the things that we talk about and discuss on How Do You Feel, please share the podcast with them. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And as always, make sure that you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.